0: Well, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Our text is going to be verses 18 through 22. Those are the last um, verses in the third chapter. And our title of our series is Homeless. And it's just an exposition as we walk through 1 Peter, but... The subtitle for this message is From Subordination to Exaltation. We've, we've been looking at um, the call that Peter had for all of us to subordinate ourselves to every human authority, the call for slaves to subordinate themselves to their masters, the call are the description of Christ who subordinated himself on the cross, the call for wives to subordinate themselves to their husbands, and then last week we looked at the, the fact that that call applies to all of us in every relationship of our lives, as the next section is. And so that's what we, what, what we, where we ended last week and, and where we pick up is in verse 18. So if you would read with me uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. I'll be reading right now from the English Standard Version. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and has is at the right hand of god with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him please join me in prayer heavenly father as we come to your word we ask that you would help us to see why you have given us this text what You want to impart to us in regard to our faith and transform us, we pray, through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The theater may help us understand something of Peter's message. Really, his whole message, but I think it's particularly relevant in in opening up our text today. The gospel message is not a movie that we are to watch. It's not like a film that we are to watch, maybe like a documentary where we learn various facts that inform our lives. The gospel message is, apparently for Peter, a script. It's like a script that a theatrical troupe would take. And they would put all their various parts and gifts, whether they're the creative director, whether they're the, the, the actors themselves, the dire- uh, uh, the. the, the people that do the, the sets and the costuming and all of that come together and they take what's in that script and they actually complete it. They make it alive for a given audience. It's not finished until it's, that has happened with it. But in fact, in writing plays, plays playwrights, they, they generally know that what they're writing will not look at all like a finished product. They leave a lot of things unanswered because they want it to become alive in the lives of those who are then bringing it to an audience. It's that way in the church. We bring gifts differing, and we are called to bring the gospel to life by embodying the script, if you will. The Bible, again, it's not like a film, but more like a script, which calls us to perform it and enliven it. The members of Peter's audience are being called to act as Christ did in response to evil. We saw that back in chapter 2 and starting in verse 21, which might require suffering. And how is it that they're not going to cave to fear in the midst of that suffering? We too are the members of Peter's audience. It wasn't just that audience in Asia Minor nearly 2,000 years ago, but rather it includes us. In a secondary way, yes, but certainly in a primary way for us. What would happen if we really did subordinate ourselves, as we've been looking at in the last several messages, to every human authority? Wouldn't everything just run amok? I mean, let's be honest, that's, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Maybe it would, but honestly, it seems like it's doing that anyway. Where do we find answers for these things? Well, for Peter, the answer is you go to Christ. Jesus Christ subordinated himself, not only to Pilate, Herod, and the rulers of the Jews, but to all the people and their judgment on him. Crucify him! Surely everything did run amok when he subordinated himself, and it might well do the same for us. This isn't some sort of pragmatic call that if you do these things, everything's going to really work out great. Well, it will, but not maybe the way we think it should. But then what? Uh, Imagine you're a believer in North Korea today, Myanmar, or certain fundamentalist communities in India. Their fears are not quite as imagined as ours not at all. Why will they suffer? Well, because they follow Christ and do good. And what fears do we actually face? That fears that tempt us to return evil speech for injustice, to turn away from laying down our lives for others. You know is it is it fears of what they are trying to do to us? Well, what if they do? Is that the thing we should fear the most? Not according to our text last week. now is it? But Christ the Lord we are to regard as holy. Why should we return good for evil and suffer for it? I mean, the last verse we read last week, which is the introduction to this week's text, is it is better if God so wills to suffer as those who do good than as those who do evil. That's verse 17. That's what leads into for or because Christ also suffered once for sins, etc. So it's an answer to the question that's implied in verse 17. Why in the world should I return good for evil and then suffer? Why would that somehow be good? Well, first off, it's worth noting that it's not automatically God's will for you to suffer, if it is God's will. So it's not always God's will for you to suffer. Thank God, right? Grateful for that. But if he does will it and you do suffer, it is better. If you're suffering because you did good for Christ than if you did evil. And frankly, when you're suffering, you might be tempted to think, what difference does it make? But surely the answer is a lot, at least for Peter, and I think it is for us as well. Shouldn't only evildoers suffer? This is how we think the world should run, is it not? Where's the justice and suffering for doing good? Peter's answer might be paraphrased this way, and I confess, this is loose paraphrase, but I think by the time I'm done today, you'll understand how I arrive at this paraphrase. Because the gospel is a living script, Christ died for you in order to bring you to God, and that same script calls you to follow him all the way to heaven, and you signed up to be in the cast that will bring it to life when you are baptized. That's my loose understanding of the text. You see, the script is real. Jesus will truly bring you to God. He won't bring you halfway there. It is living and active to work itself out in us. Christ's own subordination all the way to the point of death, the injustices they suffer are not the final word. They too will be raised with Christ to heavenly places. And that will not be true for evildoers who suffer. It's better. Our text is about the triumph of Christ over all evil in his mission to bring us to God as we remain committed to bringing the script to life among us. Let's explore our text under three headings. First, Christ's mission to bring you to God. Second, Christ, victor- Christ victorious over all opposition. And thirdly, Christ our ark of rescue say that three times christ our ark a-r-k not a-r-c of rescue first of all then christ's mission to bring you to god we read this in verse uh, if you would join me in verse 18 again for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit first peter is a cross-saturated message. This is the third time Peter has explicitly gone to the cross in this letter. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect, He paid the ransom. We sang about it earlier, He paid our ransom. That's what that verse is focused on, is the redeeming price, the ransom that Christ paid on the cross for us. Then in chapter 2, 21 through 24, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now when we covered that a couple of messages back in our series, when we explored those verses, wanting, my part, wanting to highlight their primary point, I overstated a point. Now that would be very unlike me, I'm sure. <laughs> to ever overstate a point. Never. I mean, it would such a rare moment. Um, But I did. I overstated a point. I said that while Jesus died for us in an atoning way, that this particular passage was only talking about benefiting it was for us in the fact that it was an example. Well, I do feel like we need to almost overstate that point because it's been so attacked. There are so many people who think Christ's death was in no way an example, and clearly Peter is highlighting that point there in chapter 2. However... Uh, if Christ's death was not for us in an atoning way, it would be a meaningless example. Be a meaningless example. Be like a parent saying to their kids, you know. We, and we often tell people this, we say, you know, Jesus loved you so much he died for you. And if they have no context for that, they're like, how is that love? Imagine a parent saying to the child, hey, listen, I love you so much today, I'm going to die for you. They're thinking, I'm not really feeling the love, dad. Now, it's different if they're about ready to get killed by a car racing down the road and he dives in front and throws them out and he dies, then they would feel the love. You, you, you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a difference. Context matters, right? The example of Christ by itself, if that's all his death was, would be meaningless. So I do believe, in fact, that that verse, Christ died for you, leaving you example, might better be read uh, that Christ suffered for you or died for you, which resulted in in leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So yes, it does refer to his atonement. You see, it is only Jesus who suffered the consequences we deserved, and that serves as an example. His suffering in our place is the substance behind our call to suffer for others. We don't pay for others' sins, as Jesus did, but we do suffer because of them and don't pay back their sins. We do not return evil for evil. We return forgiveness and love rather than evil because we know Christ paid the price. So in doing so, we show how God has acted toward them in Christ. Now, in today's text, the third cross-centered text in 1 Peter, I mean very explicit cross-centered text, the idea of Jesus' example fades into the background. Though it does not entirely disappear, here Peter zooms in on what Jesus accomplished in his death. His victory over death in the grave for for himself, Jesus, and us. He conquered, he he accomplished something that was not just for himself, it was also for us. So, Now, to understand this verse, let's start with how we normally think. It's kind of important to, to start there. How do we normally think? Well... If you and I were God, and I don't know you well enough to say for certain, but I'm going to guess it's pretty likely true. Just, just guess. All the perpetrators of injustice would be the ones hanging on crosses. If we were in charge, all the guilty ones would be on those crosses or trees or however we would deal with it, firing squads. I mean, except for us, of course. We would exempt ourselves because we didn't really mean to, right? But that's how we view justice. It's easy to incite a crowd to shout, Crucify him to this day, if we believe the victim will do us harm. If we fear them enough, we are happy to see them strung up. And we do crucify them verbally, which before God is no different. Who have you crucified verbally? That you thought was doing you harm. It gets back to what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Because Peter has focused in on how we use our language. Our tongue. Kings put their enemies to death. They don't die for them. Our king suffered for you. But get this. The righteous for the unrighteous. Or the just for the unjust. Could be read that way in context. i I think arguably that's what's going on because they're experiencing injustice. And that's the language he's using here. Just versus unjust. The meanings are so overlapped you can interchange them. But Christ died for you, the just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is backward. But it is God's way of making the world right. Of course, because the world is backward, he's turning it all around. Paul puts it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were all, power, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly bear, dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this: While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is revolutionary. We've gotten so used to it, and the reason I focus on this. We've gotten so used to it, we kind of hear it religiously, we don't really stop and think about how revolutionary it is. I think it's important for us to back up and not assume it's just this religious given and think about it for what it was really doing in the world when it came. It was utterly upside down. It goes against, if we're honest, our sense of morality. We want justice, by which we mean the bad guys pay. And the good guys get their day of glory. We might conceivably lay down our life for a good guy, but for the bad guy, not likely. in fact, next to impossible. Why did Jesus do this? Well, our text tells us, in order to bring you to God. In order to bring you, the enemies of God, to God. Now, not only did Christ's death redeem us by paying a price, as chapter 1, verse 19 tells us, ransom us, and provide an example that we should follow in His steps, as chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 highlight, additionally, He atoned for our sin, offering Himself as a sacrifice. Now, get this, Jesus is both the priest and He is the sacrifice which He offers. And he did all of this in order to what? To bring us to God. He carries us to God in himself. He carries us to God in himself. Christ suffered once for sins. That phrase for sins is used 51 times in Leviticus and Numbers. And each time it is translated as a sin offering. Christ suffered once for sins, or in other words, as a sin offering. He atoned for our sins. He paid the price. He suffered on our behalf. He removed our guilt from us. All of this is sort of ca- captured in that idea of what atonement was. He brings us to God in two senses. First, by his atoning death, he makes the way for us to go before God and worship. You see, we are a worshiping community, so he creates that worshiping community in his atonement. Because he brings us to God. Secondly, and this is the emphasis in our given text. Secondly, he, his ultimate mission. He will bring us all the way to the presence of God after death. He carries us within his own death, resurrection, and ascension to the presence of God. He didn't just die and pay a price. Like like someone who you might go to the grocery store and you get up to check out. And this has actually happened to me. I was in another state of all things. And the person who had been before me left money to pay for my groceries. And that's amazing enough, right? But Jesus didn't just pay a price and leave. He would be more like a guy who not only pays for the groceries, but after you've bought, gotten them, he puts them in your car. He drives you home in your car. He takes the groceries out and puts them in the cabinet for you. Jesus completes the work in total from start to completion. Amen. Notice the progression in our text. If you were to just follow it. ...on a timeline or a, you know, kind of graph it out. You you see in particularly verse 18 and 22, the beginning and the the end. He died, was raised, and has gone into heaven. So, he descends to earth. That's the precursor that's not explicitly stated. He, He was incarnated, came down. He suffered and died. That's downward trajectory. Was raised, ascended into heaven... High above all authority and power. So, so it's like a V, right? That's the trajectory. It's important. I'll get to that in a moment. Not only do we follow Jesus' example in suffering, but he will bring us all the way to, through to heaven in his exaltation. Again, these verses are answering the question why is suffering for doing good better? Because Christ did it for you, and it is Christ-like to do it for others. It is Christ-like not to retaliate with evil words or actions, but to entrust ourselves to God. Like Christ, we don't return our wrath toward the unjust, but in some sense we rejoice. Why? Because Christ did that for us and all of our injustices. In doing so, we are performing the script, if you will allow my analogy from earlier. So that it becomes alive before our audience. The audience is the world. Now here's the reality. When we bring the script to life. There are a couple of responses that the audience might have. And believe me. With plays. The audience is involved one way or the other all the time. They might throw tomatoes and eggs. Stones. Or the like. Or. They may see the gospel and salvation. The reality is we don't control that. We're called to perform the script. As Herring puts it, the church's vulnerability and suffering among the nations proclaims its participation in Christ. Secondly, it is good because Christ, who suffered for doing good and died, was raised to life, and is actually now victorious over angels, authorities, and powers, will bring us all the way to completion. Now, that leads us to the second point. Christ Christ victorious over all opposition. Christ victorious over all opposition. Look with me again at verse 19 and 20. In which... So obviously, we're starting in the middle of the sentence. We'll get back to that in a moment. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The meaning of these verses is one of the most debated in all the Bible. I mean... <laughs> It struck me yesterday afternoon to think of the irony that Peter said that some of Paul's writings were hard to understand, and yet it's Peter's text that gets the label as one of the hardest in the entire Bible. (laughs) Paul's probably thinking, like, what? Is this pot calling the kettle black, Peter? I mean, really? (laughs) Whatever else these verses say, they must support the point, the key point of the whole passage, which is that although wicked evil powers threaten you, they will not have the final say. Now that, that's whatever they say, they must support that key point, which is clearly the driving point of the passage. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, wrote, This passage functions as a word of encouragement to Christians oppressed by the powers they faced. Serves as a word of encouragement to Christians oppressed by the powers they faced. So... The meaning must be kept in line with that idea. And to understand them, I, I, we have to explore the answers to four questions. I'm grouping two of them together, so I'm going to put it under three. The first, when did Christ go? Wherever it is he went, when did he go? Second, where did Christ go and to whom did Christ speak? I'll group those two together. And then thirdly, what did he say? If we can unravel that, I think we've made progress. And I'll do it as briefly as I can. If you want details, talk to me later. I'll send you some stuff. Anyway, when did Christ go? Well, to answer that, let me back up slightly into verse 18 again. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went. So this is talking about Christ's death and resurrection. Historically, many, including myself, I, I, I don't know, some 15 years ago, because I was following whatever commentary I was reading at the time, um, took that to mean made alive, that, that made alive in the Spirit to mean that Christ was made alive in the days of Noah, the pre existent Christ, in the Spirit. But honestly, um, that makes no sense of the sentence as it sits in front of you on the page. Um, it just, it just, it, it takes so many mental gymnastics to get there. I think it needs to be forsaken. Um, there is a sequence going on in the passage. We, 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 we talked about it. Suffering, death, made alive, ascension. Now, unless you want to change the trajectory to a W, <laughs> which could be, there's no doubt that this is still in an upward trajectory. And there's nothing in the text to indicate otherwise, never mind that whatever happens in verse 19, in which, happens after the resurrection. So it is not talking about some descent into hell between his death and resurrection. The text is explicit about that. It happens after the resurrection. What is less clear is what is meant by in the flesh and in the spirit. So, you know, we we, we see uh, he was made put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Commonly it's understood he was put to death in his body but made alive spiritually or in his soul. Now, if that were the case, one would have expected different words in Greek. You would have expected soma instead of sarx, flesh, body, flesh. You would have expected suke, soul, rather than spirit, pneuma, spirit. But, And and so I think it's unlikely, never mind that it would make a strange theology of the resurrection, but I won't go there right now. Most scholars today take it to mean this, and I think this is, one of these is at least pretty close or, or right. Put to death in the realm of the flesh and made alive in the realm of the spirit. You see, he was both put to death and made alive bodily, he wasn't put to death bodily and only raised spiritually. He was put to death and made alive bodily, but in reference to two different realms. It's also possible to translate it put to death by the flesh, meaning by human beings, uh, but made alive by the Spirit. Um, and, and you know, given the attachment to the Noah story where humanity is referred to as flesh regularly, that does have some attractiveness to it. Regardless of which way one goes with that, whatever Christ did in verse 19 occurred after his resurrection, not between death and resurrection, or not thousands of years earlier than his death and resurrection. Verse 19 begins in which? Either in in the realm of the Spirit, the heavenly places he went and proclaimed, or in Christ being made alive and in the Spirit. Uh, made, I'm sorry, in Christ being made alive in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed. Now, that's the route the New International takes, which I think is a very legitimate way to take it. After being made alive, he went and preached. It's certainly accurate, and I think it captures the sense very well. Well, that's the first question. The second questions, the second and third, where did Christ go and to whom did he speak? Well, whatever, again, we're, we're speaking of in verse 19 is as well, as post his resurrection and in the process of ascension. In fact, he goes somewhere in verse 19 and he, the same word picks up in verse 22. He goes high above all. So it's this going that I think is consistent throughout and is talking about the same going. In the ancient world, powers and principalities be they fallen angels or some other kind of spirit, ruled in the heavenly places but below God's throne. Certainly in the Jewish mindset, below God's throne and Christian mindset. There was a lot in Jewish tradition as well as the tradition of Asia Minor regarding the flood of Noah. More than what we just have in Genesis 6 through 8. Just to put it in perspective, remember... Peter's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, mixed community of Jew and Gentile. But let's just assume they were all Gentiles for the sake of discussion. Those folks in Asia Minor would have been as versed in the Noah story as people living in Washington State are in Sasquatch. Okay, I mean, it's just, you you can't go there and it's, I mean, it's everywhere. It's, It's a story you know. Now, I'm not speaking to the truth or untruth of it, and and certainly their myths about Noah were inaccurate and accurate in different ways. But they were very familiar with it, so much so that in 200 B.C., so long before the time of Christ, when the Jewish exiles arrived there, they arrived and found towns named after Noah's ark, claiming this is where it landed. Of course, we know from the biblical story it was frequently discussed, and not during Peter's time, but about a century later, there were actually four different coins, a whole series of coins minted by the Roman government for that area that had Noah and sometimes Noah and his wife on them. That's how much they were interwo- that story was interwoven into their culture. And of course, the Jews had uh, traditions. First Enoch is often cited, and, and rightly so, that, that establishes the content, what, what was all in that 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 um, uh, tradition in 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 Asia Minor, they even called Noah a preacher of righteousness. And this was not a Jewish tradition, but he was referred to as a preacher of righteousness. In First Enoch, a Jewish uh, traditional book, uh, that that there there were held that there were spiritual beings, demonic beings, that led rebellion on earth from the time of Adam to Moses. I mean, Adam to Noah, Um, and that they were in some way imprisoned after the time of the flood. Maybe much like Satan being bound from deceiving the nations during the gospel era, they were imprisoned following the flood. Christ's resurrection was a declaration of their final defeat. and I believe that's what Peter is driving at here. He's picking up on these ideas and he's driving at that point. Whatever hopes they had of release are kaput. They have been conquered. They have been That all their hopes of power are gone with the resurrection of Christ. Now, that's important for a community facing evil powers manifest in the faces of injustice. Those evil powers do not have the final say, Christ does. His resurrection is their defeat. When we fear forces arrayed against us, we must remember they do not have the final word. What if this group got in? What if that group took over? What if they, they don't have the final word? Might it meet, bring lots of suffering? Yes, they don't have the final word. We don't ultimately fear that. I know if you're like me, you're thinking, well, maybe I do. I'm. Hang on a second. <laughs> but this is our faith. What did resurrected King Jesus say when he proclaimed to these spirits? You know, this is our final question of that section. What did he say? Well, he was proclaiming. That's all we're told. He was proclaiming victory, I would argue, as clearly in the context. He might have used words. If he did, we don't know what they were. He may have simply allowed his ascension to be the speech that declares their defeat. Much like the heavens declare the glory of God, there, there is no, spe- no place where their language is not heard, even though there are no words. In the resurrection of Christ, it pretty well says all that needs to be said, right, about their defeat. Because they, in effect, were behind his crucifixion. Paul speaks of Jesus having disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, That verse is set in the context of the resurrection. So you might say, because of the resurrection, the cross made a spectacle of them. The cross killed him, but the resurrection said, so what? He wins. And because he wins and we're in him, we win. Again, Herring says that Peter reveals how the risen and ascending Christ announced God's judgment on spiritual powers in rebellion against God. And that leads to our final section, Christ, our ark of rescue. Look with me again at verse 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. The believers to whom Peter is speaking are called to be preachers of righteousness, like Noah. In word and in deed. Peter now connects them to Noah by bringing the Noah Noah story forward to their baptism. The flood foreshadowed baptism. The flood not only judged the wickedness and violence on the earth, it also cleansed the earth from that moral filth. The waters judged them, and the waters cleansed the earth. The flood waters were both judgment and salvation. Without those waters, the ark could not rise above the judgment. So the waters lifted the ark up above the judgment if you will. Jesus, speaking of the day when he would return to judge his enemies and rule without hindrance, he used Noah's flood to make the point in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 37, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. By the way, if you, want to be, if you want to answer the question, do I want to be taken or left behind? In this case, you definitely want to be left behind. When one is in the field, one is taken. They're taken to judgment. The flood swept them away and took them. That's the next verse, by the way. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So the people of that time, Noah's time, would be taken away, swept away in the floodwaters of judgment. Like those who were persecuting the believers in Asia Minor, like those who persecute Christians today all over the world, they were oblivious to their own judgment. Baptism saves us Because like the waters lifted the ark above the the flood, the waters, the judgment, the waters of baptism unite us with Christ, who is our ark. In Him we are safe. Unite us with Him in His death, resurrection, and ascension, which raises us above the waters of judgment. A good picture is given in Isaiah 8 that I think... Appropriate to apply here because Peter's been drawing on Isaiah 8 a lot. The verses immediately preceding our text. Quote from Isaiah 8. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. But, you know, uh, regard Christ always his holy. All that's right out of Isaiah 8. The last part adapted slightly. And in chapter 2 when he talked about Christ being a stumbling of offense, a rock of offense. That's out of Isaiah chapter 8. Well, there's something else in Isaiah 8 that's relevant to this, I think. In that same place, God speaks of his people rejecting the peaceful waters of Shiloh so that they will instead now be swept away in the flood waters of the Euphrates, referring to the Assyrian army that would come upon them, metaphorically. Baptism is like the peaceful waters of Shiloh in which we choose union with Christ in his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. And so he raises us above the floodwaters of judgment coming on the earth. But we have to choose the peaceful waters of Shiloh or else we get the judgment. Baptism saves. I mean, he does say that. And it's important to acknowledge that whatever his qualifications, and there are some that we will address, Peter states that baptism saves. Now, the modern Christian recoils at that statement. Oh, You can't say that baptism saves. Well, Peter did. We think, well, baptism is not necessary, and there's some truth in that. We, that could be explored, but... It's not necessary. You just have to pray this prayer, repeat after me, or read it out of this tract, or maybe come forward at the end of a service. That's all you have to do. Oh, okay. I think we do this because we fear that baptism can be something we do to earn salvation, as if we couldn't do all of those other things to somehow earn salvation. The irony in it is that we may have discarded what God gave us, that's what we'd call grace, what God gives us, and substituted it with our own formula because we think it's better than God's way. Which sounds a whole lot more meritorious than saying that baptism saves. With the proper qualifications. What is meant when it says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal to God for a good conscience? Well, I've always taken that to mean, along with, well, along with the translations we have in front of us. That, that it's not a bath that cleans dirt off your body. But it's more about this relationship to God, which is how we then get away with, well, the water's not even necessary. The whole act isn't necessary. Kind of where we, we then go as our next step too often. Um, Peter would likely have used other words if he was talking about not taking a bath. Um, than the ones he used. The word translated dirt usually is referring to moral filth. Moral filth. The word for removal was already used in this letter in its verbal form in chapter 2, verse 1. So, remove, put away. Remove all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's some moral filth. You see, the flood, remember, temporarily at least, cleansed the earth of moral filth. Now, of course, it wasn't permanent. There was more work to be done. Peter could be saying, baptism saves you not because washing and water removes your moral filth. That will take time and effort aided by the Holy Spirit, parenthetically. But baptism saves you by the pledge you made in baptism to follow Christ in good conscience. The other two times this good conscience is referred to in Peter, it's referring to the good we do in response to evil rather than returning evil. In, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, it's, this conscience is about desiring to act honorably in all things. The pledge of a good conscience is a pledge to follow Christ. So how does baptism save? Well, Peter actually answers that question. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of baptism is not in the water. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the power. Baptism is that point at which not just our souls, but our entire embodied person is joined with Christ through the symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection with the promise that we too will join him at the Father's side. The power of salvation is not in the water, but in our union with Christ in His resurrection, which is pictured in the symbol of baptism, burial, and resurrection. As Paul puts it, having been justified by His blood, reconciled to God by death, the death of His Son, how, uh, how much shall, more shall we be, be saved by His life? His resurrected life has the power of salvation. Well, our salvation story is complete in Christ. We still await the script's final act for ourselves. He has been raised. Therefore, it confirms the script. We shall be raised. That's the last act we partake of. In the meantime, we're part of the suffering and death. Here's the script. The Messiah's self-sacrificing life in the face of... To participate with him in making the world right in new creation advanced communities. It's another word for the church. These communities of faith, we, we are called to, to, to make the world right amongst ourselves with porous borders flowing out into the world. We need not fear death and suffering because of resurrection and exaltation, Christ has defeated the powers. Christ is victorious over all evil and cannot be stopped in his mission to bring us to God. As we remain committed to bringing the script to life among us. Let me just in closing make one more application to another area of our life. Hear me. Talk of justice in our culture has reached fever pitch, and at times it's hard to recognize exactly what we mean by justice. This has resulted from many things, and I would offer two in particular. One, grave injustice exists in the world. Grave injustice exists in the world. It's a real thing, and it really happens. Secondly, any earthly solution falls short of righting all wrongs. Apart from gospel hope, we are left with anger. On an individual level, let's just put it there for simplicity, if someone kidnapped your child, abused and eventually killed them, short of returning the child alive and healed, what could right that wrong? I mean, even if you find the perpetrator and give him the death penalty and it is performed, you have not righted the wrong. Anyone who thinks so probably hasn't had children. It may be the most we can do, but it is certainly not enough. Believers have the only ultimately, ultimately satisfying solution. Faith in the fact that God will set all things right. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. In our baptism, we pledge We pledged to live in the way of Christ. Just as God waited patiently in the days of Noah, we must wait for final justice while laboring to live justly toward our neighbor. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us faith. To live the script, to live the gospel, to take what we love and proclaim to love in Jesus and so love him that we want to emulate him and that we follow your script and make it alive in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen.